Guests of the AltWire podcast are recorded remotely. Due to the nature of remote recording, certain issues such as reverb or background noise may exist in some of these interviews. Although we will always try our best to clean up the audio in post, please be advised that certain issues may still remain. We appreciate your understanding, and we hope you enjoy the show. You are listening to the Altwire Podcast, where we feature candid interviews with some of the hottest names in the entertainment industry. Get ready for your host, Derek Oswald. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Altwire Podcast. My name is Derek, and I am super excited about our guest today, Richard Patrick of the rock band Filter. Filter was actually the first band that we interviewed on Altwire back when we opened up in 2013. It is super awesome to be able to catch up with Richard and see how things have been over this last decade and how he feels that not only his music has changed, but how he feels that the country has changed as well. I'm excited for you guys to listen in. So without further ado, let's get started. Hey, thank you so much for joining me today, Richard. How are you doing? I'm feeling fantastic. Thank you for having me. With this new album that's coming up, it's kind of gone through a long an arduous journey. It started in 2018, probably went through about three or four different name changes <laughs> yeah. to get to the point of where it is now. Can you talk about the last couple of years and working on this record and what it was like? Well, the reason why it took seven years is because I took a side hustle. I have a side hustle. It's doing movie scores. And uh, I did, uh, let's see, I did the second with Ryan Phillippe. I did uh, Dark Crimes with Jim Carrey. I did the Chariot, Thomas Mann, and John Malkovich. And um, yeah, and a few more. And that eats up a huge section of your time. So that was one of the reasons why it took seven years. But I don't know why I changed the name so many times. I guess I was just thinking out loud. Yeah. Like, what do you think of this title? (laughs) You know, like, I think I'm going to call it They Got Us Right Where They Want Us At Each Other's Throats, you know? and about six months ago, I was just like, you know what? I don't want to call it that. It's too long. I'm going to have to start over with a brand new name and I'll just, I'll call it the algorithm because that, that made the most sense to me, you know? Now, over that time, it also went through a few iterations as well. For a brief period, you were also working with, I need your help pronouncing his last name. Brian Leeskang. Yeah, he, so Brian helped me do four songs, two of which have already been released as singles, Thoughts and Prayers in America. And then he helped me with a song called Summer Child and then a song called Command Z. It was, was mainly his lyrics. Or his, he's an insane lyric writer. So he did work with me again. Then I worked with a new kid by the name of Zach Monowitz, who's an amazing guitar player, who's crazy. Just look him up on Instagram. He's insane. And then I worked with Johnny Radke and my bandmates, Bobby Miller and uh, Elias Mullen. Also, Sam Tenez helped me with two or three songs. And then Mark Jackson and Ian Scott helped me uh, on the song Obliteration. Um, So I've had a lot of help, but I've also enjoyed being in my studio and kind of manhandling everything and, and, and kind of tearing it apart and putting it back together to see how it sounds with a little bit more of my identity. Because that was what was missing with the last like crazy eyes. I 
really relied heavily on a producer to kind of help me do it. And I wasn't as heavy handed as, as I normally was with the other records. And I think that's what the difference is on this album is that I, it, it sounds like it came after Amalgamut, the original three on Warner Brothers. It feels like short bus, title of record, Amalgamut, the algorithm. You know what I mean? It, it feels like the fourth from that early period of my career. I'll agree. I'll agree. Yeah, because on title and of the Amalgamite, I I was really dropping the guitar down, way to you know down to C and drop A, and in some cases drop B. I wasn't doing that on short bus, so it kind of feels like I could have, you know, and it could have happened after the Amalgamite. But a lot of the guitar playing, a lot of the guitar playing is the same kind of guitar playing that we did on short bus, which was just fuck you. This is what I'm playing, you know, like. It's feedback and it's awesome. You know, it's it's art and crazy and obnoxious and that's what that's what I like about it. The overdubs. You know, something that I love about your story is how you started out in nine inch nails and then ended up striking out on your own and had an equally successful career in your own right. Thank you. One thing that was awesome though is how you reunited with Trent and the gang at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Oh, yeah. Since that time, have you guys discussed potentially collaborating again on a separate project? No, we have not discussed it, but that was definitely a huge highlight in my life, for sure, in my career, for sure. Like, it's like getting married, having kids, being in filter, rocking out the Nine Inch Nails reunion. It's all like as awesome as that. I am forever grateful for Trent for having me back. And I, I mean, we played five songs together and, you know, he even covered Hey Man, Nice Shot. I mean, it was that he had Nine Inch Nails learn Hey Man, Nice Shot and we played it and it was amazing. I am forever grateful because it was it's quite a memory. Now that had to be a bit of a mind fuck seeing your first band cover a song that pretty much puts you on the map after you left. It was like in rehearsal, it, w- it was like I'm sitting there screaming the lyrics at the end of the song and, and Trent's just looking at me like, fuck yeah, like, go for it, you know? And I'm sitting there, I wish I would have met you, yeah! You know, like fully committed to the part and Trent was just like, fuck yeah, dude, do it. Just like back when we were 16, you know what I mean? Or when I was like 20, you know, like the first time we were playing Terrible Lie or something, you know, it was absolutely amazing. It was, you know, and to to have all of Cleveland witness it because it was literally, there was like 30,000 people there. It was amazing. It was a huge show. I literally walked out and the crowd was in just total chaos, like fully like, holy shit, it's Richard Patrick, you know? And I was so emotional by it that I was like crying and I, and I started to sing and I was way off pitch and it was, I was just like, Oh my God, what is happening? And then like we got to the scream part and I, I'm, you know, it's the end of a racer and I'm screaming, lose me, you know, like fully, like that was when I was like, okay, I'm back. I'm back. No more tears, no more crying like a bitch. But, uh, so it was, it was truly, it was, uh, it was awesome. Looking at your backdrop there kind of got me thinking about something. America! 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 
the the liberals the liberal democrats as am i can also have the flag we 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 are we are also able to fly the flag speaking about that the last time i spoke with you in 2013 we actually talked at length about the state of the country about a year after the tragedy of sandy hook thinking back yeah. that it's been a decade since then where are your thoughts on where the country has gone in that time I mean, obviously, there's a lot to unpack. Where do you feel like we've gotten worse and where do you feel like we've progressed? I, I've kind of learned to, to almost like avoid talking about politics because people fucking hate you when they find something out about you. The Trump supporters, and I'm not a big Trump guy. I'm not, in fact, he's a threat to democracy. He's lying. He lost the election. He knew he lost the election. January 6th was almost an insurrection. Like I'm fully, I, that's what I see. And f- the problem is, is people respond with so much hate. The Q-Trumplicans, as I call them, are a vicious bunch of people. These are sick people, you know, and they're in a cult and they're, they hate it when I, you know, am real and, and I just acknowledge what the, what the problem is. And so I've, I still feel the exactly the same way. I, I think Republicans just need to get a Chris Christie or uh, an Asa Hutchinson or just someone who's just normal and, and civil and not lying, not a fucking like crook, not a criminal, not some guy that's stealing secrets and having loose top secret documents laying around Mar-a-Lago and you know, but the January 6th is where it's, it's just uh, abhorrent. You know, he tried to subvert my vote. You know, I mean, 80 million of us voted for Joe Biden. You know, only 74 voted for Trump, you know, and we won the election. And he didn't win the, the popular vote, but he won the electoral college against Hillary Clinton. But no one likes him. You know, and if you're a Trump supporter, bless your heart. I wish you well. And I really hope you understand that you're on the wrong side of history because he's fucking lying to you. He's lying to you. And it absolutely drives me crazy because my political journey has been a bit of a weird one. I grew up in a very conservative household. And so obviously growing up, that was where my views were and everything else. As I got older, you know, and around the time of Obama, I started to, you know, do a slight shift towards the center and then more towards the left. Now it's weird, and I feel like I'm kind of a walking contradiction. I consider myself a far left liberal now, but there mm-hmm. was a period of time in which I was a conservative, and it is really, really awful. I was conservative. Yeah, that's right. I was conservative before the war, the Iraq war. Like right before the Iraq war, I was like, fuck them. Let's go to war. Let's, you know what I mean? Like I was really stupid and naive when the Bush administration proved that they were just, and plus other things like climate change. Climate change is real. Climate change is an actual fucking scientific fact. We are heating up the Earth's atmosphere. It is premature because of all the CO2 we're pumping out. It is fact. And, and like, I need, I need my politicians to understand that, to understand science. And like George Bush was like, nah, there's science is still out on that one. They don't know about it. He's an oil man. George Bush was an oil man. You know, his compadre that went in with the no bid contract 
for the Iraq war, Halliburton was Dick Cheney. You know, the, the conflict of interest was insane. And, you know, so the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war was bad. I mean, you know, I, that's when I really was like, wow, what is going on with the Republican Party? And then to see what's happened as a result of eight years of Obama to come out of it with Donald Trump, you know, the birther, you know, and he's a scumbag. Yeah. He is a bad man. He is a bad person. And this is not that much about music. <laughs> this interview is not much about music, but the reality is, is every song on the record, I, I throw a punch on lyrically. I talk about it. Summer Child, especially. I, I let him have it. I think it's interesting because when you put out thoughts and prayers, a lot of people got pissed. But the full fact of the matter yeah. is, you don't hate America. If anything... I do not hate America. I love America and I want to help America. I hate... And, I and you know what? I love the American people. I love the American people and I, and I love the Trump supporters. I do. I want them to be... He's, they just have to understand. Snap out of it. He's fucking lying to you. He's just lying. You know, he's a bad guy. You know, look at what, look at his foundation. You know, they're not allowed to even run a foundation anymore in New York because of, of so, so corrupt. You know, he's, he's a bad guy. That's it. That's the message. <laughs> you're, a, you're in a cult. Snap out of it. We love you. Come back. We forgive you. Just fucking vote for Chris Christie. You know, get vote for someone who's a little bit more respectful of fucking other people. You know, Joe Biden doesn't sit around and fucking bash on, on Trump supporters. He doesn't say anything about that. He's just like, look, we're all in the same boat. Let's work together. You know, that's the America that, that I want is where, the, where we work together to fight a common, you know, climate change. Just work together and fucking make electric cars and be inventive. Throw solar panels on your roof. You know, like, that's the next big crisis is climate change. You know, it's not, it's not, I mean, shit, you know, it's so easy. Obviously, you have fans from both sides of the spectrum. Before we go into talking more about the music, what advice would you give to the fans that are on the right side and the left side? How do you feel that we as a country can get back to constructive dialogue? Get rid of the bullshit. Get rid of Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's a fucking distraction. She's not a serious person. She's a fucking joke. She's a fucking nut. Get rid of the, get rid of the entertainment right-wing fucking Rush Limbaugh's of the world. You know? I mean, I know he's dead, but, you know, get rid of all that shit. Let's just deal in facts. Let's just deal in, in evidence-based reality.
Now, one thing that I'm curious about, and this will transition into the music, you worked with Brian on the record, but then shortly during the lifetime of this record, it was reported that you guys weren't going to continue to work on the album together. Was that a organic decision or did you guys just not have the same artistic vision on the album? No, I, I invited Brian to finish the rest of the record and he just kind of disappeared. And that's kind of who he is. He's, he's a very strange person and he just kind of disappeared one day. <laughs> Have you heard from him since then or should we send out a rescue crew? No, I mean, his lawyer called me and that was pretty much the end of it. It was, it was like, hey, okay, cool. Where is he? Oh, he's headed to London. Okay, cool. Live in London. You know, like it was weird. Strange. When he disappears, he disappears. He's not on Facebook. He's not on Instagram. He doesn't post anything. It's all, it's like he just disappears, you know? So I just have to kind of let it, let it ride. And musically, talking about Short Bus and this album as well, you famously have used a drum machine on quite a number of records. How do you approach mixing samples from a drum machine as opposed to actual drum track stems? Is there a different way to get it to fit in the sound? Oh, yeah. There's all sorts of, you know, samples and loops and stuff like that. You can compress it and tweak it and manu manipulate it any way you want in a computer or just with like analog gear or whatever. Um, but the most important part is, is using it artistically as like, does this help the song? Like, is this drum loop going to be cool? Or maybe should I get a real drummer and have him just go balls out and go crazy? That's why this record doesn't follow necessarily short bus because I used a drummer on pretty much every song. Elias Mullen played drums just like Steve Gillis played drums on Tidal and, and Amalgamut. Elias Mullen played drums on this record and it's, you know, it's real drums. So that's why it's, it's more like Amalgamut and less like short bus. Cause we, there, we were definitely Elias and I, I was like, here, let's just use V drums from Roland. Let's just, let's just program, let's use V drums with like samples because that'll sound industrial. But the more we did that, where it sounded like, are we just trying to sound like a real drummer who's using samples? You know what I mean? Like, and so it was, I, they convinced me, Brian Virtue and, and Elias Mullen convinced me to go into a studio for a couple of days and let him just whip up some drums. And he, he blew me away and the drums sound amazing. And, and yeah, there's samples, you know, like some of the snare drums, we added a sample on top of it to make it sound even bigger. You can layer different sounds together and two or three different kicks if you wanted to. You can do whatever you want. I mean, it's amazing. And since you've had literally both options on different records, some with live drums, some with drum machines, do you have a preference from a sonic standpoint or do you feel like there's good applications for both? I think it's, I mean, for filter, it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid because there's definitely drum loops throughout the record. You know, there's there's definitely, you know, and even live, like we have a big drum loop playing uh, in Welcome to the Folds. We have a big, it's like, you know, just it's underneath the whole thing is like a reinforcement. Um, but yeah, it's a hybrid. You know, you have 
little sections where like, hey, let's just have a little 808 just playing something. Or like in the song Command Z, there's definitely like two or three different drum patterns going on throughout the end of that song. And like um, that one, that one was like, hey, let's leave it as drum machine. We didn't have drums on that. We had just drum machines. You've mentioned a couple of songs, Command Z, Summer Child, among others. Is there other songs on this record that you think are extremely special that you'd love to talk about that you can't wait for the fans to hear? Oh, yeah. Well, Command Z is definitely one of them. Um, Burn Out the Sun is kind of like the take a picture of the record. There's a lot of good stuff. The song that starts the whole record off is called The Drowning. And it's about my friend who's literally drowning in alcohol. Like he cannot stop drinking. It is, it is horrible. And uh, he gets the first song on the record. And The Drowning is just a, a perfect first song because it, it, it's got a verse, of course, a verse, of course, and then boom, it goes into this big outro, you know, this big like vamp and uh, just a jam section. And I just, I love doing that. And we do it two or three times on the record. Um, yeah, Up Against the Walls, amazing. Obliteration's out. Everybody here, everybody loves that one, I think. Then there's Say It Again. Those are the Zach Monowitz's songs. Say It Again, Up Against the Wall, and For the Beaten is another song I'm really proud of um, that's been out for about six months. It's awesome. The, I'm really super proud of this record. It's really good. I agree, I agree. And I like how it does seem to like you said, be a mixture of those first few records. There's different aspects of your sound all over the record instead of just trying to chase one particular sound. But one question that I have for you, what is one album that you feel is criminally underlooked by either critics or your fan base? What is one album that you feel is underappreciated that needs more love? I think The Trouble with Angels was definitely one of my like i go back and i listen to it and i'm like damn this is a good record you know the song drug boy is awesome you know it's just like come along sally 12 hours of acid you know like i love it can you tell that this is the microphone i use <laughs> when i sing yes because it's 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 the microphone that i use when i sing and what i love is that every single time you've quoted a lyric you feel like Perfectly on sing pitch. It. Like perfectly yeah, on I, pitch, man. <laughs> I'm just going for it. Going for it. I'm in a I'm in a really good mood, you know, because the record's coming out and we're going on this Rob Zombie tour that's gonna be amazing. And it's just gonna be like super fun the whole time. Yeah. Looking forward to it. I'm just in a good spot. Yeah, man. And I freaking love the songs that I heard, I didn't get the chance to listen to it all the way through because I was listening to it while coming up with questions and I'm like, oh shit, I got to get on the interview soon. So no, it's fine. But definitely check the whole thing out as like a piece of music. Like for, give yourselves 43 minutes and, and crank it in your headphones. This record is a fully like realized journey. All the artwork is about an astronaut. Like the astronaut essentially comes back to Earth to find it completely destroyed and uh, apocalyptic. And along the way, he, he meets a girl. He meets the little girl that has the cat in the obliteration video or he'll meet some other survivors somehow. 
but um, the whole record is that he he kind of disses on the people that did this to the planet. He kind of goes off on them. And then by the end of the record, when you get to this song called Command Z, it's literally the chorus goes, That's why I want to be. That's why I want to be high as a motherfucker. Yeah, high as fuck. And, and the reason is because he's like, I'm just going to get wasted. Like, what, what else can I do on planet Earth but just finally just get wasted and have a case of the fuckets? And, and, you know, and, uh, by the time you get to that song, you'll realize like, okay, so he's, I've taken, uh, hopefully I've taken you on a journey and it's, it's a big, huge body of work. So that gives me an even greater appreciation for this album now knowing that. So would you consider this to loosely be a concept album since you said it kind of follows that whole story? Oh yeah. It's, it's a concept album. It's not like the wall, but it's definitely like, you know, there's an attitude going through it that, you know, it's like, what are we doing? You know, like, wh- why are we fighting? We're fighting over this guy. Yeah. We're literally fighting over this fucking guy. You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot of that. And, but it's, it doesn't say, you know, shame on you or anything like that. It's just kind of like, I can't believe we're in this situation. Since it's talking about the world at large to, kind of loop back to what we were talking about in the beginning. What are some issues that you just don't think are being talked about enough? I mean, climate change is huge. And, you know, do we have to shoot each other every couple of months? Do 20-year-old kids have to go fucking ballistic in a school and kill 20 kids every couple of months in this country? Can, can we think of something? Can we, like, think of something? What is it about these kids? Oh... They all seem to have AR-20, AR-15s, right? They all seem to have those, and they get them legally. And they get them legally when they're 18, and they go into fucking high schools, Uvalde, Sandy Hook, you name it. It's all the same. It's always the same gun. It's always the same. It's always a disgruntled loser who's, who's got to do it. You know, why can't we separate the losers from the guns? But that's a huge issue. You know, that's a huge issue. That's not little. You know, and you don't even actually have to be 18 anymore. I saw something that absolutely blew my mind the other day, and I looked at it to make sure that it wasn't just some elaborate Photoshop or some hoax. There was actually a company out there that made something that they called the JR 15, which was literally a real the junior, yeah, the junior, literally (sighs) made to be a real AR 15 for little kids. They tried to make it cute with little skulls on it and everything. And then after people got disgusted about the, you know, the skulls and they're making it cutesy, they're like, oh, we're just going to make it look like a normal gun. My thing is, why are we giving guns to wow. kids? It's like, are we setting them up for the war against China or the war against Russia? Like, what are we doing? Creating soldiers? Like, it's just, it's so un-American. You know what I mean? America is an amazing, smart, creative, innovative place. Think of all the things that were invented here. Yeah. Think of all the inventions. It is a place of science, knowledge, and technology. It is not just about ding-a-lings running around with fucking shotgun. It is not. The Second Amendment is not America. It's part of it. And it's being abused by 
Neanderthals who just want to kill people because they're bored or they're insane. It's wild. And we're having such a mental health crisis in the United States as it is, you know, especially in the wake of COVID, everybody's kind of going a little bit crazy. You know, things are stressful. The world's going to shit. You know, last thing we need is to get these guns in the hands of people that already aren't there mentally and are looking for a way out. And unfortunately, the way they choose to get out rather than get help, they choose to, you know, basically take out other people before taking out themselves. And it's horrible. They want to go out with a bang and they want to do their thing and they're crazy. You know, it's bonkers. How have you handled your own mental health? My higher power in life is science, technology, knowledge is power. You know what I mean? And I confronted it with the truth. Like, the truth of the matter is, is I don't drink like normal people. I don't smoke like normal people. I smoke four packs a day if I smoke. Yeah. I drink a case of beer if I'm left to my own devices. I will take any drug, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to come to the, I had to fully acknowledge that, like, dude, you get on a bender and you f- go absolutely apeshit and things fall apart and you get arrested. I'm allergic to alcohol and I break out in handcuffs every time. So that was number one. Number two was, okay, so how do I deal with this? Well, there's definitely ways. There's rehab. There's psychologists. There's psychiatry. And psychiatry is really good for other things that I have problems with. But I confronted it like, those are the most important things I can do is literally go. I just quit the tour. I threw hundreds of thousands of dollars away on a tour and I went straight into rehab and I told everybody like, I'm, I'm doing this for the next year. Like, leave me alone. I'm just going to be sober for a year and, and I'm not going to do anything. And, and it was costly and expensive and it cost me a lot of friendships and everything else. But it was the most important thing that ever happened to me. It was the quintessential fight of my life. It was my algorithm. This math equation that is to compute, the math equation was my mental health. And so the problem with, with Chester and the problem with, with Chris Cornell and Scott is they would relapse. It's within those relapses that they did the crazy shit. And they died an alcoholic suicidal death. And it's because of the relapse. And that knowledge, that knowledge, that relapsing is absolutely a death sentence. And that's how I look at it. Because those guys are dead, I'm looking at what their results were in their lives. And I have sworn to myself that like there's no drinking anymore. There's no pot. There's no more booze. There's no more drugs. It's over. Like, and, and I have to live in that fact-based reality of that I can never use again because I'm not, I'm an addict, period. And once you make that jump, 
like when I went into rehab, I was like, get a good look around, bro, because this is the last time you're ever going to be here. Good. Like, like this is the first and last time you're ever going to be here, period. Like, get a good look because this is it. You're done drinking. And that's what I had to tell myself when I went in. And literally, I mean, I was waking up at seven in the morning and feeling so hungover that I would literally just go to the, the, the refrigerator and start drinking beers like immediately. And then I would get wasted at like 10 in the morning. And then I'd pass out and I would sleep until like five and I'd wake up so hungover that like I literally couldn't do anything. So I would waste like day after day after day after day because then I would feel better and then I would go to work and like work on a song or something. And then I'd be like, hey, let's, let's go have a drink. Let's go out to a bar and get drunk. You know, like, let's go. I want to do it. You know, and that, and that became this insane pattern. And so I was fully an alcoholic. And then I would, I would stay, I'd go to the bar. I would stay up until four and then I'd come home. And then I'd drink some more. Then I would pass out for like three or four hours. I'd wake up at seven. I'd feel completely hungover. Couldn't deal with it, so I'd drink a beer. <laughs> like it, it was awful. It was the. It was so sick. It was so disgusting. So yeah, get the help you need. Go and ask for help and admit to yourself. Like just be honest with yourself. Like that's what I would say to other people that are in 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 trouble with alcohol and drugs. Just if you think you have a problem, believe me. You have a problem. Alcoholics are the last ones to know. They do not know until it is too late for like the most part. Like, why is why is why is no one returning my phone calls? Why is no one returning my phone calls? Because no one wants to talk to you because you're an alcoholic. I have a friend right now. He he literally like you you lost everything. His wife, his his family his girlfriends, his music career is over. Like, like God knows what he's doing. And it's a shame. And it's just literally, it's like, if I could point to one thing, it's literally just booze, you know? So you got to just buckle down and get the help that you need because it's not okay to feel like shit. And some people, you know, when they're depressed, they think the only way to deal with it is just to make themselves feel more like shit, to just drink the troubles away. And then, like you said, yeah, creates a vicious cycle. Well, there's this half an hour of like the sunset, like you know what I mean. Like you're in your life, like in the buzz. There's having your first drink, and then there's like having your third and your fourth, and that's where you're happy because you're you're literally your alcohol blood sugar goes crazy, and you feel euphoric. And then from there on out, it's getting wasted and getting crazy, and then the hangover, which is another... So it's literally like there's, there's one time of the day that feels good, and that's the half an hour of drinking before you just get totally wasted. It's like a sunset. It's like you're waiting for the sunset, and here's the sunset. Great. For 30 minutes, it's gorgeous, and then for the rest of the day, it's dark. You know what I mean? For me, it was bizarre. I would, I would literally like drink myself to sleep and then wake up and then just do the whole thing again. And like, well, I fucked up. I'm going to have, I'm going to get wasted. Like, it was bizarre. Because I'm in this program of recovery, I see death all the time. 
And that's the sad thing because 96% of us die in alcoholic-related death, whether it's suicide, whether it's a car crash, whether it's, you know, you go to jail and you, you get killed in jail. Like, like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, alcoholics will find a way to die. Like, they will, they will hang themselves. They will, like, you know what I mean? And that's why the, the recovery that I'm in is literally, it's like, literally people are dying all the time. And you're like, wow. You know, because 96% of us end up dying from alcohol. And I want you to be that 4%, brother. We need you around, man. Yeah. Well, for 20 years, I've been in the 4%. Good. For 20 years. And I, and I take it one day at a time because tomorrow I could go off and drink and get totally sick and you know, drive off the side of the road and, and get hurt. Yeah. It, it, it could all end with one sip. So I just keep it, that knowledge, I just, that's it. Like I can never drink again. I just have to live with that. And I can. And there's so many people. And it's weird because like normal people, like my wife is a normal person. She can have a drink and then never drink for like six months. And like, like, oh yeah, I, yeah, maybe I'll have a little wine with dinner. And she has a little wine. I'm like, you going to finish that? She's like, no, I'm good. What? You're like, how can you not finish <laughs> you know that? What I mean? you know? How can you not get wasted? You know what I mean? Like, and knowledge is power. So I just make sure that my kids are aware that there's this gene that could be inside you that might lead you down a road of darkness and, you know, just avoid it. Just avoid it. You know, that's all I can do. So important to pass these lessons on to our children. Just to each other. Yeah, to each other too. Because the other thing that's amazing about recovery is online, the social media, like I get direct messages from people all the time that are like, I heard your story and it made me think, you know, that I should quit quit drinking or I'm going to go to rehab or, or what like, and I'm doing really well. Thank you for that little inspiration that you gave me. Like that's all I can do is, is, is by being honest, I've actually, I, I think I've helped people to find their sobriety. So that's huge. And obviously, this is one of them, what we've been talking about. But what are some other big lessons that you've learned either through your career or your lifetime that you would like to share? I think one of the biggest things that I've learned recently is just if you are a good person and you try and do the next right thing and you try and be happy that like everyone around you loves you. Like if you can be a confident, happy person, even when you don't want to, even when you want to complain or you want to just fuck it, I can't believe this is happening, blah, 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 blah. Get me blah, blah, blah on the phone and we're going to talk. You know, like if you can avoid being upset and in pain in front of other people and like try to spread happiness and a little bit of joy, like it comes back. It literally comes back and I'm 55 and I'm just realizing that. We need to start treating moments in our life more like experiences instead of annoyances. Like there are so many little things in our lives that we can focus on that can annoy us or frustrate us or we can be impatient about something, or we can get on the phone and yell at someone like you were saying. But the fact of the matter is, is if we learn to kind of just enjoy life and enjoy each moment, 
things get so much better. And it's something I've been working on. So like, in my world, my atheistic world that I live in, the minute you're dead, the minute the blood stops flowing in your brain, and you become unconscious, and then you die, it is over. Like, it is over. I don't know about all the clouds with the people with the harps and the the angels and stuff. Like, I don't think so. Like, in my in my assessment of what's going on and with science and technology and my higher power being knowledge and science and technology, like this is it. Like this is it. We are alive on this tiny little planet in the middle of a solar system in a not so big part of the galaxy in a, in, in a not so grand place in the galaxy of 400 billion stars in this galaxy, the, the, the Milky Way galaxy that we're in. And like somehow we're alive. And if you think about it, the trillions of sperm and that one egg, the, the, we're all lottery winners. Like we fucking, like the odds of, of us being born from that are trillion to one. And, and we're here and like, it's our earth and it's our planet and we know what it is. We're conscious we're, and we know our place in the galaxy. We know our place in the universe and we're all here together like fucking kumbaya, <laughs> brother. Like, you know what I mean? Like, find the joy. Find the joy. What is, thinking back over your long career, your funniest memory? Oh man, there's a lot. There's so many. I think one of the funniest things was when Trent and I got kicked out of the club that we played and were thrown on the ground like 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 they do in the movies where they toss you into like the garbage in the alley, you know, outside the club. Trent and I were breaking beer bottles. And like fighting with, we were, this is when drinking was fun and it was cute. And, you know, a couple of 23 year old kids are getting lit up and having fun. And, you know, and Trent and I, we had just played Nine Inch Nails had just played the show in Pittsburgh. They turned the club into a disco after. So we played at like nine o'clock and then they kick all the fans out and then they turn the club into a disco at 11. And like everybody has to come back in. But like we were like, wait a minute, we're still here. Like we're not leaving. So we just sat around and got wasted in the bar when they had the disco going on. And we were trying to like, if you hit, if you hold a beer bottle and if you hit another beer bottle, you can literally hit it in such a way that the bottom blows out. (laughs) And like, it's a perfect circle of glass that just like, and like the whole beer falls straight out. So you, and we kept trying to do it to each other. And so we were doing it to like random people, like, here, let me see it. Like, and it would work. It would work. And so we did it to a couple of random people and like they were pissed and they had just spent like whatever, four bucks on a beer and like they were mad. And so the bouncers caught wind of what we were doing and like there's glass and beer and everything's all over the floor. And so they literally, pick us up because I'm, I was back then, I was like 120 pounds soaking wet. And they picked me up and they picked up Trent and they literally walked us all the way out to the <laughs> thing and like dumped us 
outside the club. And like, we were laughing so hard because it was like, we're laying on the ground and we're just looking at each other like, what the fuck just happened? Like, and, but it was also kind of like, these are truly great times that we live in. Like, Nine Inch Nails was on the upswing. Things were looking up. We had just played this club and sold it out. And the crowd was eating it up and they were crazy. And we were having so much fun. And it was literally like one of the best times of my life. Like, like we just got thrown on, you know, thrown out on our asses and, and we were laughing about it because we thought it was hysterical. <laughs> and we would have done the same thing if we were the bouncers. It was a good time. Oh my God. I'm just laughing, just picturing it, just imagining young Trent and young you just going around breaking people's beer bottles yeah. and, you know, being so yeah. drunk, so drunk, you don't realize you're pissing people off and them just going, what the yeah. fuck? You know? <laughs> yeah. We were bad. We would get in trouble, good trouble all the time. We would get into trouble all the time. Well, man, just like it was 10 years ago, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I just want to wrap things up by just basically asking, is there anything else you would want to share with your fans that have listened this far? I love you. Thanks for being there for me. My family is awesome and you've helped raise them. And I appreciate you. Beautifully said, my man. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I greatly appreciate you. And I can't wait till everybody else gets to hear what an awesome album you've made. Thank you. I appreciate that, brother. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this episode. If you like what you heard, please feel free to give us a review on your DSP of choice and stay tuned for more episodes as they become available. My name is Derek Oswald, and thank you for listening to the All Wire Podcast.